If you would uh, open your Bible, Exodus chapter 4, second book of your Bible. I know some of you have been reading ahead a little bit, which is a good thing. Sometimes if you're in a book of the Bible, you can make that book your devotional reading and you kind of get to be a little bit ahead of the preacher, which is good. And then you might write down some questions that you have and perhaps they'll be answered. But I want you to see, to see tonight the humanness of Moses. Sometimes we look at uh, Bible characters and we think that they were holier than thou. They, were, uh, they wore a cape to bed, you know, stuff like that. And we think of Moses and perhaps Abraham and other characters. And, and we see the faith that the Bible mentions. And interestingly enough, when you read about Abraham in the New Testament, when you read about Moses in the New Testament, the Bible lifts up the positive it doesn't mention the negative about Abraham. And as I can remember in the New Testament, I can't remember anything negative mentioned about Moses either. Even though in this chapter, there's going to be some things that Moses blew it on. And that reminds me again of the faithfulness of God that uh, when God uh, brags on his children, of course, you know, the Bible doesn't hesitate to tell us about people's sins. But I think there's something there that when we see a New Testament uh, account of an Old Testament character, the good stuff that they did is really uh, accentuated. <laughs> and, and I think that that's good news for us because that's what we all hope for, isn't it? That our blunders won't be mentioned and the good things that we do uh, to honor God will be. In Exodus 4.1, I want you to notice that Moses answered and said, and would you please underscore this in your Bible, what if? What if? If. Are you a what ifer? Are you a what ifer? But what if this happens? The New King James says, Suppose this happens. You know, if you want to drive yourself crazy till the rest, for the rest of your life until you go home to be with Jesus Christ, just keep repeating that question. But what if? You know, they say 95% of the stuff that we worry about and surveys that they've done and and uh, research that they've done never happens. 95% of the what-ifs that we say never even happen. And we drive ourselves crazy with the what-ifs. Well, Moses has something pretty big before him, and he says, what if, suppose, suppose that this happens. If you're a what-ifer tonight, let me encourage you. Stop. <laughs> it doesn't do you any good. Now, there may be a few things that you, you know, that five percentile... But 95% of it, just throw it out the window. It does you absolutely no good to, to do the what-if scenario. And some of you guys just drive yourself nuts with that. So let it go. Well, Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Now I want you to look in the previous chapter. Look at Exodus 3 verses 20 through 22, and I want you to get ready to circle or highlight. Are you ready? Here's God talking. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall, now when I put emphasis on a phrase, that's for you to underline. I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And verse 21, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. 
But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing and you will put them on your sons and daughters and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. How many times did God tell Moses it is going to happen? I will do this. You will do this. It will happen. You're going to plunder them. I'm going to lead you out and you're going to come and worship me on this mountain. But Moses said, but, but what if? But just, let's just go over the what ifs. It'll make me feel better if we talk about the what ifs. Are you a what ifer? <laughs> I will, I will, I will. How many times has God said this to you? Uh, maybe through scriptural promises. You are saved. I am for you. I'm not against you. I will establish my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. These are bedrock promises. These are the promises of God. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. When we say, but what if they don't like me, God? What if I don't know enough? Well, you know, we can go all night on that one. Now, I want you to, I want to give Moses a little bit of a break here because you know what? Even though he did the what if thing with, with all the I wills and he did the what ifs like we do, he had something here. He was on the mark about something. And the thing that he was on the mark about, the people of Israel, was about their lack of belief. He said, what if they will not, see that word in verse 1, believe. This has been Israel's problem from the time of Moses until the present day. The biggest issue that the Hebrew people have is summed up in one word. The word is unbelief. And as a matter of fact, uh, Alan and I had the privilege of going to Israel and most people in Israel are either atheists or they have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior or they go through the rituals of their religion without really believing in God. Some of them would claim to be agnostic. That is that they just don't know about God. They do the ritual things, the religious practices, Passover. They may even practice the Shabbat, the Sabbath day. But as far as the reality of a relationship with God, they know nothing of it. They go through the exercise, but they don't know God. And I would submit to you that there's a lot of Americans like that tonight. They go to church on Easter and Christmas, and now Mother's Day seems to be a big one. But for all practical purposes, they go through the motions. God is certainly not uh, something that is real to them, or they're not in a relationship with Him. Let me remind you of a couple of uh, Bible verses. You might want to write here next to uh, Exodus 4.1. It says, Quite right, uh, Romans 11.20, They, Israel, were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. In he, uh, Romans 11.23, it says, They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again, speaking of Israel. Romans 11.23 Hebrews 3.19 says, And so we see they were not able to enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief. That's Hebrews 3.19. The main issue with Israel is unbelief, but I would submit to you that is a problem for us tonight. Now, you remember when there was a man in the New Testament who had a son who was demon-possessed? 
And he brought him to the master, Jesus Christ. And Jesus had been doing all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders. And demons were no problem. He could even keep them silent at a word they would they would leave a demon possessed person and a man brought his son who had been possessed for a long time and remember the son threw himself into the fire the demon would uh, just dominate him and he would foam at the mouth and uh, Jesus said something to this man about his son being healed and the man said this famous phrase and many of us can relate to this phrase he said Lord I believe but help my unbelief and I think that's sometimes how we feel, huh? We, we believe, but some parts of us don't believe. Practically speaking. I believe, I, I know there's, you've proven yourself over and over again to me, God, but help my unbelief. And that may be an honest prayer to pray. <laughs> Lord, I believe in you, but sometimes my faith wanes. And the Lord said to him, to Moses, verse 2, what is that that's in your hand? And he said, a staff. Now, this is a rod, uh, a rod of a shepherd. It would be a long uh, rod with a shepherd's crook at the end. And of course, this was uh, important for Moses' particular calling at the moment because he was a shepherd in Midian. He was shepherding the flocks of Jethro and there he was doing his thing as a shepherd. And so he said, it's a staff. Was it just a staff? Yes. Uh, ordinary piece of wood that's all it was Moses used it for 40 years tending sheep and so Moses says well what's in my hand God is a staff it's what I use as a shepherd it's uh, what I have as a tool of my trade and then he said throw it on the ground so he threw it on the ground and it became a snake or a serpent and Moses fled from it now a couple things the first thing is that I want you to see the staff for a second in Moses' hand. He's having this conversation with God. And though an ordinary staff, just a staff, it's going to become the tool for the manifestation of God's power. It's going to become a vessel for his power. And in much the same way, that's what we often say. I'm, I'm just Michael. Just, just a normal, ordinary guy, ordinary staff. And God says, I want to use you as a vessel for my power to show my glory. But I'm just Michael. What if? What if? Right? And so, I want you to just think about this tonight. Paul says that um, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 5. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from us or ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. I find that sometimes the best preaching I do is when I feel the most apprehensive. When I'm not trusting in myself, when I'm unsure, when maybe I didn't have the best week and I've got to really be on my face before God. I've got to really say, Lord, I'm inadequate. I'm just, I'm just a human. Just a staff? Well, he said, throw it on the ground. And immediately, could you imagine this? You throw your stick that you've been hanging out with for 40 years, your trusty stick. Maybe you lean on it, you use it to climb up hills, and all of a sudden, the thing's a snake. Now, I don't know if you like snakes, but snakes are pretty high on my scary list. I'm not one of those snake lovers that, you know, likes to wrap around my neck and I'll pet you, little snake. You know, I, I'm not into that. 
I don't like snakes. I'm a dog person, okay? Not a snake person. And so Moses did the logical thing. He ran away from the snake. He fled. But there may be a little deeper image here, or at least an application for us tonight, and that is that sometimes we flee. You know, God's trying to show Moses that this stick, he's going to take an ordinary shepherd's stick and convert it into a vessel of his majesty and power. But Moses was ready to run. Moses was ready to get out of there. Moses was ready to flee. And I also want you to notice that the stick becomes something very specific. It becomes a serpent. And if you think back in your Bibles, you'll remember that early on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, there's a serpent that shows up. Remember? Now, later on in the Bible, we're told that that serpent is Satan. But he shows up in the form of a serpent, and what's he trying to do? He's trying to get people from, to flee from the presence of God, to flee from his commands, to, to depart from that relationship. And so, very specific, it becomes a serpent, but interestingly enough, throughout much of Egypt's history, the pharaoh wore a cobra of metal on the front of his headdress as a symbol of his sovereignty. And so what's going to end up happening is as a first sign, Moses is going to throw down the stick and it's going to become a snake in front of Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh in Egypt is wearing a headdress that has a snake on it. That means he is sovereign. As a matter of fact, uh, the Egyptians thought that Pharaoh was the only son of the gods, literally. So Pharaoh was like a god to them. Well, there he is wearing this snake. It speaks of my sovereignty. I'm Pharaoh, the great Pharaoh. And God's going to have Moses and Aaron throw down the staff. It's going to turn into a snake. Now you remember, later on in the story, we're going to see that the magicians of Pharaoh can repeat the same thing. Two snakes fall on the ground. If I'm correct in my remembrance of the account, was it two? I think it was two snakes. At least that's what the Ten Commandments movie has. <laughs> and what is, what is Moses's uh, snake do to the other two? <laughs> Eats them up. Now what's the image here? You think you're sovereign, Pharaoh? You think you wear your little snake and you're going to dominate the world? I've got news for you. There's one greater than you. And uh, his name is God Almighty. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand. I, 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 I imagine a little fear and trepidation here. It's a snake, right? Grab it by the tail. Now, I don't know how long it took Moses. I don't know if he gave it a few tries. Have you ever had to deal with a snake like in your backyard? I have to admit, I became kind of girl-like. We had a, a snake in our backyard. <laughs> And it was doing its thing and I had this little thing and I was trying to catch it and the boys were going, Daddy, get this thing, get this thing. And I, I wasn't too thrilled about grabbing this snake. But Moses is supposed to grab it by its tail and it's going to become the staff. And of course, he stretched out his hand, caught it, latter half, verse four, and it became a staff in his hand. Are there some things in your life that you need to grab by the tail tonight? Some things that you're afraid of? You think, oh, it's too slithery, too slimy, too fast. I'm afraid. God says, grab it. Grab it by the tail. He says, I don't know, Lord. I don't know. Well, this is going to become the rod of God, the staff that he's going to use, that they may believe, verse 5, that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This is divine assurance coming to Moses to quell his fear about their possible unbelief. And the Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom or into your cloak. So he put his hand into his bosom and when he took it out, his hand was leprous like snow. Now leprosy, one of the... um, manifestations of leprosy is that you would have little spots underneath your skin that would turn white as snow. So literally, Moses takes his hand out and (laughs) his hand has become full of leprosy. Could you imagine that? Oh, no! And then, of course, God tells him to put your hand in verse 7 back into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now, I'm not sure what is being spoken of here. I can only conjecture. But, you know, leprosy is a type of sin. It's an image of sin in the Bible. It spreads. It's incurable. And I'm not sure if God's saying that Israel is full of sin and and that's going to be dealt with and they're going to be restored through this process. Or perhaps it's something given as a prefigurement to the signs that will be done in Egypt and how God will strike them. But it reminds me that in our lives, just like Alan was talking about tonight, something can happen to us and God can do it and God can undo it. He has that kind of power. And, you know, sometimes we think about things in our life. Can God undo this one? Can he restore my hand back to the way it was? Uh, Maybe Moses asked that. Wouldn't you ask that? If God had you do that, the first thing I'd be saying is, is it going to go back to normal? And sometimes that's where our unbelief comes in. God, can you, can you restore it again? And God says that he will restore the years that the locust is eaten. But it shall be, or excuse me, let's go back to uh, verse 8. And it shall come about that if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But it shall be that if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, verse 9, then you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, we're going to see later on that signs are done in front of the children of Israel and they do believe and worship God. But you'll remember as we're about to go through the ten plagues, the first plague that... Uh, God uh, puts upon Egypt is indeed the Nile turning to blood. So this is a little foretaste of what's coming. And Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord. Now, you would think by the time Moses saw the stick turn into a snake, he saw his leprous hand be leprous and restored, you would think that God makes this promise about the Nile turning into blood that Moses is thinking, Yeah, ready, break, let's go, Lord! You've got power. But what does Moses say? Moses said, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. I just want to catch you up on current events, God, just in case you didn't know. I'm not the most eloquent guy around. Now, God was watching over Moses from the time he was a baby. You remember? He made sure that he was taken care of and he would be the deliverer. But just so, neither in my childhood in my past, uh, it, it, it doesn't work for me, Lord. I, I'm slow of tongue. I'm slow of speech, verse 10. And this idea here is the idea that he can't put, um, it's not necessarily that his tongue's slow, but scholars say it's the idea that he's not quick-witted. He's not quick with eloquence or retort. 
And the Egyptians thought highly of that. If you could uh, be in debate, if you could be in dialogue and you were quick-witted and you were able to fire an answer back, they thought highly of that. Moses thought, hey, I've been in those courts for 40 years, God, and things just don't come to me quickly. My tongue's just not quick to speak out that word. And I think if I go before these people, here's the implication of what Moses said, they're going to laugh me out of there. I don't have the skills, God. I'm not a preacher. I'm not eloquent. Now, I've told you guys in my own testimony, when oral report time came, Scott, you asked me about public speaking, I would stay home from school not to speak in front of the classroom. Now, some of you find that shockingly hard to believe. But it's true. I was terrified to speak in front of people. And I told Scott, he asked me about this public speaking thing, and I said, you know what? For me, it was a process, and of course, I, I, had, I had apprehension. I still, too, sometimes even today, walking up to the pulpit. But to me, the greater thing was what God wanted to say to his people, and the gospel, that need, it was bigger than my own fears. And I think that's something that we need to think about tonight. Sometimes what God calls us to do is bigger than our fear of that thing. And so we just need to honor him. And so the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Or makes him dumb or deaf or sing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Just like your staff, Moses, I can take your ordinary mouth and convert it as a vessel for my power. I made the mouth. I can do whatever I want. Now then go. Now you can hear that with some authority. Now then go, like the wizard in the Wizard of Oz. Get out of here. Right? And the line... <laughs> Go! Do the job! I've given you enough! Now you would think with the go, Mo. Go, Moses, get out of here, that it'd finally be time. And he'd finally say, Okay, Lord, you made the mouth. You've got the power. It's obvious. I'm off and running. And I, even I, now notice this further promise. I'll be with you. I'll teach you what you are to say. Go! Stop your excuses. But he said, Please, Lord. Send the message by whomever thou wilt. The NIV says, but Moses said, Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Moses, the great man of faith. The great, you know, when you look at the history of the Bible, one of the first names that comes on your lips is Moses. Faith. Conqueror, the most humble man that ever lived, used mightily by God, led millions of people. Powerful man of God. Send somebody else. Please, I pray. Oh, well, maybe that speaks to you tonight. You know, the contrast is Isaiah. Remember, the Lord said, who will go for us? And Isaiah, Isaiah 6.8, Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. What does it take to be a person like that? What does it take to have faith like that? I think it takes taking our eyes off of ourselves. I can't talk good. It's just a, it's just a staff. It's it. When you look at yourself, you will realize, no, you can't do it. But our adequacy comes from God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And that's why he takes a lot of people who have messed up backgrounds like you've heard in the last four weeks. And by the way, if you've heard my testimony, you know I'm just another one you can add to the collection of messed up backgrounds even though when I say it, my mother doesn't want to acknowledge it <laughs> on the front row. No, no, not my son. That was me. A man who was totally off track and God said, I'm going to use you, Michael. You're going to be my mouthpiece. 
And so Moses says, no, let's send somebody else. He, he keeps fighting God after all this evidence, all these miraculous things. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, verse 14. You see, God is patient. God is benevolent. God is kind. God is merciful. But if you push it, if he keeps showing you stuff and you keep fighting him, he can and will get angry. Now, why does he get angry? Well, he wants to accomplish something here, but his anger with us, thankfully, in the New Testament is more like a father's anger to a wayward child. And I'm grateful for that. But here, God has a divine commission. Moses knew it way back. He knew God was wanting to send him as the deliverer. He said no. He said send somebody else. And finally, God's anger burned against Moses. Now, I want you to see what God says. God does, doesn't just zap Moses and take him out and say, I'm going to start over. He says, notice, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. God's preparing a merciful uh, backup. And you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you, and here the idea is the plural, both you and Aaron, what you are to do. I've got a plan, Moses. Your brother's going to be with you. Now Moses hasn't seen Aaron for 40 years. But God is going to set it up so that they can be together. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and it shall come about that he shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be as God to him. Now, this does not mean that God said Moses is a God. This means that Moses' words were going to be shared with Aaron, and Aaron in turn would share them with the people. So as Moses was a prophet before God, Aaron was a prophet to Moses in the sense that Moses would say, this is what the Lord said, tell the people. So he was kind of like the second link in the chain. And uh, in Exodus 7.1, if you're curious, uh, it says that I will make you as God to Pharaoh. Speaking of Moses, when Moses appeared before Pharaoh, he was speaking the words of a prophet of God and therefore represented God before the people. There's only one true God. So if you have a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon say, well, didn't the Bible say that God made Moses a God before Pharaoh? Or doesn't it say that Satan's the God of this world? Yeah, but none of them are the true God by Nature, remember Galatians 4.8? So that's the idea. And you shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. And then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now, Moses does the honorable thing. He's serving his father-in-law. He's a shepherd among that people. And so he, sa he asked him if he can go. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses also took the staff of the rod of God in his hand. The two sons here are Gershom, if you're interested, and Eleazar. It's interesting that Eleazar's name means my God is help. And certainly Moses would need God's help. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, if you want to cross-reference a New Testament verse, let me share it with you. It's Romans 9, 17 and 18. Romans 9, 17 and 18. Paul's writing about the sovereignty of God, and he says this, 
He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then God has mercy on, on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now if you go and you trace the steps of God's dealings with Pharaoh through the book of Exodus, you will find, and I believe I'm accurate here, ten times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, and ten times it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So half the time Pharaoh hardened his own heart, half the time God hardened his heart. So I think the best explanation of this particular uh, theological point is that God confirmed what Pharaoh already was going to do and he made him even harder and harder. Some people ask like in the New Testament, it was said of Judas, uh, not specifically by name, but it said that one who was Jesus' friend would betray him. It even gave the amount uh, in, the, in the Old Testament of his betrayal price. So if that's the case, did Judas have a choice? Or did God just make Judas to be a vessel of destruction? We wrestle with stuff like that. Did Judas really choose to betray the Lord? Because it had to be fulfilled. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the people who crucified the Lord, we know that they're held culpable, accountable for what they did, and yet the Bible predicted that Jesus would be crucified. How do we reconcile these things? If God gives a prophecy about a nation or about an event and it must come to pass, then the players in that event, are they simply puppets? Was Judas a puppet of God and for that matter, Pharaoh? For that matter, Pontius Pilate? For that matter, the soldiers who nailed the nails into Jesus' hands and feet? For that matter, the Pharisees who led the rebellion that he might get crucified? Where do we, how do we make sense of this? Well, I think what we have to understand is that in God's sovereignty, he sees everything before him, the past, the present, and the future. You can picture a parade. You know, you might be standing on a street, let's say that you go to the Pasadena Parade, and you're standing there, and you're seeing each particular grouping come by. But God is above the parade. He sees it all. He sees the past, the present, and the future. It's all before him. He can't learn anything. So we used to laugh. You know, we were at the river one time talking theology with a guy who wasn't too sure about the uh, sovereignty of God and that he knew everything. And he said, can you prove to me that God knows everything? And I said, Psalm 139. God knows when I rise up, when I sit down. God knows the word that's, before I even speak it, he knows what I'm going to speak. Before I even pray, he knows my needs. He can't learn anything. You can't outsmart a guy like that, by the way. He can't learn anything. And so Chris Green and I were joking around. We're walking at the river and we said, we'd move real quick to the right. Do you think God knew I was going to move to the right? Do you think God knew I was going to do that? Right? And we're kind of just joking around with it. But the idea is that God is never, he never says, oops, I didn't know that was going to happen. Michael, what are we going to do now? He never does that. Aren't you glad that he doesn't do that? And so what you have to do is rest in what you know about God. God is good. God is benevolent. He's merciful. Remember the verses we mentioned, Lita, on Sunday? He's not wishing that any perish, but all come to repentance. He, wants, he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. He takes, um, in the book of Ezekiel, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't find any pleasure in someone perishing. And so how do we reconcile this? We just say that God knows. He knows what people are going to do. And he's even glorified in their rebellion. 
And so Pharaoh hardened his heart. He said, who is this God? I'm not going to let your people go. And God said, okay, you'll now be a man who will demonstrate my power, but you're going to, in a negative sense, you, you think you're all that? Maybe, remember Nebuchadnezzar? He's out in the palace in Babylon. Look at this great Babylon that I have built. <sighs> oh, yeah. I'm all that, man. Look at the palace. Look at this. And a voice comes from heaven and says, Nebuchadnezzar, can you imagine standing on your palace giving yourself some kudos? Nebuchadnezzar, because you didn't honor God, for seven seasons you will eat grass like an animal until you realize that God is the sovereign ruler of men. And Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years, grew claws, nails so long, long hair, and he ate with the animals and he was out of his mind. God can do that. God can take away things in a microsecond and if you mess with them and you push and push and push, I won't let the people go. I'm not going to do what you say. Who is God that I should serve him? God eventually will show you who he is. <laughs> and so he's not a good guy that you'd want to mess with. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now the firstborn had a special place, special and sacred place even to the Egyptians. And so I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Verse 23. Now remember that in the Old Testament typology, Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Egypt is a type of the world. Notice what God says to, to uh, Pharaoh. Let my son go that he may what? Serve me. I almost think of what God might say to Satan in the case of salvation. Let my son go that he may serve me. And I almost wonder if it's kind of like that today. Some of us, you know, we get wrapped up in the things of the world and we need to let those things go and need to be <laughs> unentangled from the messes sometimes we get in. Israel's my son. Let my son go. Notice that he may what? Serve me. God wants us to serve him. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. You don't want to let my firstborn go, says God. And by the way, this will be one of the plagues, won't it? Then I'm going to kill your firstborn. Now it came about, verse 24, at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, met Moses, and sought to put him to death. Now what in the world is going on? Remember I told you we're going to have a few kind of sticky verses tonight? All of a sudden, Moses is on his way to fulfill the plan ordained by God that God's been working on him, working him over to get him on board. And then all of a sudden, Moses is at some sort of lodging place, a watering hole, kind of resting perhaps, like you'd you know, go to Arizona and rest overnight at a hotel. And all of a sudden, God wants to kill him. I mean, there's no other way around this. The verse says that God wants to put him to death. Now, if you just stopped there, you would be probably ultra confused. Then Zipporah, this is his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. Now you say, what in the world is going on? Well, here's the deal. In the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham, Hebrew males were supposed to be circumcised on what day? The eighth day after birth. 
Now Moses has two sons. He's on his way to fulfill the plan of God. And in the Midianite culture, doing a little reading on this, the Midianite males, uh, this is where Sipporah's from and Jethro, would not circumcise the males until their wedding night. Just before they were going to be married, they'd circumcise them. I have no idea why. I can't tell you why. But they did. This was their cultural way. Now Moses, think about what Moses is supposed to be doing. He's going to go. He's going to be as God to Pharaoh. He's going to be the deliverer to the people of Israel. He's going to lead them to Sinai and give them God's laws. Wait a minute. God gave a law that Hebrew males are circumcised on the eighth day. But Moses, probably under the pressure of his new Midianite family, said, okay, maybe one of the boys doesn't need to be circumcised. Maybe we'll circumcise Gershom, but not Eleazar. We'll come to a happy medium, Zipporah. And God said, Moses, if I can uh, add a little bit here, one of your boys is not circumcised. And this is to show how serious God is about his commandments, commands. He was going to kill Moses. Now, Zipporah, the wife, steps in and she's got something like a knife. And on the spot, she circumcises the boy that's uncircumcised. Throws the foreskin at Moses' feet. And God relents. And you say, what is going on? If you're going to be a leader, Moses, you need to keep my laws. You're going to tell the people, you're going to come down with my two tables of the law. And you have a child because you compromised, you, under the pressure of your new family, compromised with my law. I can't have a leader who's going to give my laws, not keeping my laws. And you think to yourself, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's kind of serious. Because if I make application to myself, that tells me that if I'm going to be a leader, I need to keep God's laws in my family. I need to honor him in my home. In the New Testament, Paul says, an overseer must be one who is over control of his household. Doesn't mean that his kids are perfect, but it means that there's some respect. There's some family structure. There's a solid family here. Not perfect, but dad, you know, he's, he's got headship and he's leading the family towards Jesus Christ. And this application is in the New Testament. And if we don't know how to rule our own household, Paul says, how can we rule over the house of God? Again, not expecting perfection, but expecting consistency. Well, if Moses is going to rule two million Jews, lead them out of Egypt and give them God's Ten Commandments and he's not keeping God's laws, God says, uh, 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 it's over. It shows you the holiness of God. God was ready even to deal with Moses in a radical way. And as often happens, his wife stepped in <laughs> and cut in for him. I mean, uh, stepped in for him. Saved his skin. Puns intended. Just to see if you're with me tonight. She stepped in. She did the work and God relented. And all I can say to you is that when you run into verses like this, you know, you dig a little bit deeper and you may not completely understand it, but uh, God was saying, if you're going to be my lawgiver, you need to be my law keeper. And I think that's the bottom line. And so he let him alone, verse 26. And at that time she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now she probably was not real happy with Moses because she had to do this and break her cultural belief. Now the Lord said to Aaron, 
Go to meet Moses. Now this is the promise that God had given earlier that Aaron was going to help Moses. Go meet him in the wilderness. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God. A very appropriate. And he kissed him. Now the language here of meeting Moses is the idea of an intense interaction. They probably ran to each other, big bear hug, and noticed that Aaron is kissing on Moses. He missed him, he kissed him. I mean, that's just the way it was going on. Forty years without your bro. And now all of a sudden you see him. He's still alive. God's working in both of your lives. And Aaron was excited. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, you know, where maybe you haven't seen somebody for a long time and maybe they're close to you and you find out that the Lord saved them too and you have this immediate common bond and it's just awesome. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel as God had instructed. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now here we see it. Moses got the info, gave it to Aaron, and Aaron speaking the words. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. Now I don't know how many signs, but apparently they threw down the rod of God and it turned into a snake. He may have shown him the leprosy thing. Uh, I don't know how many things were done, but it just says plural signs were done in the sight of the people. This is, was Moses' big question. Will they believe? Will they trust that you've appeared to me, God? And so, verse 31, the people did what? They believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel, remember we saw that in a previous study, and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and they worshiped. What a beautiful scene as we wrap up this Bible study. The people of God see that God's working, that he's really concerned about them, that the, maybe even some of the talk they heard is going to come to pass. God sees my affliction. God's prepared a deliverer. They're here. They've shown us some signs and God is working. We're going to worship. And you know, this is always the appropriate response to the work of God. The appropriate response to the work of God is worship. But let me just say to you as we close tonight, it's much more than a song or songs. Worship includes music, but it's not just music. See, the Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our reasonable service. And another translation says this is our spiritual service of worship. The way we worship God is with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Remember the modern uh, song that we sing in church often, I'll give you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. You're looking into my heart. So I'll present to you, I'll give to you that heart of worship, Lord. Because it's all about you, remember? It's all about you. So the people respond with an appropriate response. And I guess as we close tonight, I would ask you, is your life a life of worship? I'm not just talking about showing up to a building on a Sunday morning or even a Wednesday night. I'm asking you, do you worship God? You know, the, the old uh, English word for worship is worthship. And it speaks of the worthiness of God, worthship. God is worthy of our worship. Look at what he's doing. Look at how he's going to deliver the people. He's worthy of our worship. Father, I pray tonight that as we ponder these great chapters in the book of Exodus, I pray that we'll give you more than a song in our lives. 
a song in itself is not what you require. It's certainly part of it. We certainly are instructed to sing praises to the Lord, and we rejoice in that, Father. We love music. We love to sing. We love to praise you. We love the instruments. We love all that's part of it. But Lord, you want more than a song. You want our hearts. You want everything. And you deserve everything, Lord. You deserve it. You are worthy, O God. What is what are we? What is man that you're even mindful of us and yet you tell us that you love us? You have a great plan for our lives. You're faithful to redeem us from all of the the past and even our own what ifs and excuses you deal with them and you raise us up and you say I want to use you in this mighty way trust me worship me Father for many of us on a day to day basis that's where the battle is to do Romans 12 1 and 2 to truly offer ourselves to the king who is worthy to wake up on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever day it is and say Lord I have a schedule but if you want to break into that I have an agenda, but if you want to use me to lead somebody to Christ, I'm your ambassador. I want to worship you, Lord. I pray that you'll turn our eyes to you, Lord. I pray that we'll trust you with the things that we think, oh, I'm just too ordinary, I'm not adequate, that we'll remember this account of Moses, that we'll remember that you can take ordinary things like Moses' staff and do extraordinary, miraculous things with our lives. And I pray tonight, that you'll refresh us and renew us in the Holy Spirit. You'll help us to trust in you in deeper and more significant ways that you'll let us, as we saw in the latter half of this account, let us let things start at home. Let us honor you at home. Let us be those who keep the, the worship going at home so it can just simply overflow at church and in the rest of our lives, God. This is what we desperately need, to worship, to bow down low, and say, Father, you are worthy. Hosanna in the highest. We praise you because you are worthy of our worship. May you touch and heal and refresh your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.